0: So just right now, we just still our hearts before you. There's no rush. There's no race. We want you. Amen. A.W. Tozer once said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us many of us gets at this idea of what our perception of God is now if we're studying it's kind of interesting because these this whole month of November we are studying the heart of Christ for sinners and sufferers so if we are studying the heart of Christ for sinners and sufferers then the question becomes should we think of God differently If we think of Christ the Son, that he's gentle and that he's lowly and that he's always interceding, should we conceive of God differently? Again, consider Tozer's quote where he says, what comes to my mind when I think of God the Father? What is he like? What is his nature? Maybe even more to the point, what is his disposition toward me, toward us? You see, one in four people in this country grow up without a father present. Absent. No dad. Are we to think that that somehow doesn't have an impact on our perception of God the Father? Or there are some of us here who have had, and, and maybe currently do have, really bad experiences with our fathers. You know, maybe, maybe our dad was distant and angry and irritated and always preoccupied, and never available. And so we cut and pass. This must be what God is like. He must be annoyed with me. He must be tired of me. He must be put off by me. He must be fill in the blank. Still, there are others of us here, and, and this is probably the camp that I fall in, who would say, I had an awesome experience with my dad. My dad was awesome. And I look at that, and I think he was warm. He was inviting. He was a little gruff around the edges. He would get angry at times, but he would always seek to come back and forgive and restore. And so I have a conception or a perception rather of God that is driven by this understanding of my interactions with my dad. I think accessible. I think gracious. I think humble. And and Ortland says it this way in the book that we've been kind of walking through together as a church, gentle and lowly. He says... The good in our earthly dad is a faint pointer to the true goodness of our heavenly father. And the bad in our earthly dad is the photo negative of who our heavenly father is. Either way, all of us here have an indelible mark on us that shapes how we perceive who God is. You see, this is a natural question, I think, for the disciples as well because Jesus had been ministering with the disciples and constantly this idea that he was one with the Father kept coming up. You see, in Hebrews 1.3, it says that he is the exact imprint of the nature of God, talking about Jesus. In John 10.30, it says that I and the Father are One. So Jesus here is equating himself with God. And so if we're doing a study on the heart of Christ for sinners and sufferers, we ought to understand the heart of God because Jesus would be the exact representation of that heart. But I repeat, many of us, many of us here, you heard me say Father and you checked out. You heard me say Dad and you're like, yeah, well. And then there are others who are like, yeah, I'm on the edge of my seat. I'm ready to hear. I'm ready to listen. Our fathers have shaped us, for good or for bad. And so as this natural question comes up, Philip blurts it out in John 14. He says, Lord, show us the Father and is enough for us. Why? Because Jesus had been referred to in the book of John probably over a hundred times. Jesus referred to God as his Father. What about you? Are you able to say, our Father in heaven? Or my Father? Is that something that's even possible? Or is it just too difficult to get over that hurdle? You have to understand when Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, it's coming right after, or actually during, the Last Supper. Jesus is just about to be arrested and killed, and betrayed. Like, all these things are piling up, and, and he's explaining his role and the, and the relationship that he has with God the Father to his disciples. And Philip's like, hey, just show us the Father. We'll be good. And Jesus is like, look, bro, <laughs> have I been with you this long, and you still don't know me? If you've seen me, Father. What do we learn from all those references as God as God is his father in John? Well, we learn that there's absolute unity. We learn that there's absolute obedience. We learn that there is deep love. And so it's no wonder by the time we get to the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3, Paul opens his letter to the church at Corinth. And this is important. Paul wrote three letters to the church at Corinth. You're like, wait, Doug, it says one and two in my Bible. (laughs) There's actually a third one, if you pay close attention. There's a third letter that was not actually reproduced in Scripture for us. And so Paul had been dealing with a church that had all sorts of morality issues and was struggling like crazy to not idolize themselves over God. And so what he ends up doing is he sends a pretty harsh rebuke in the first letter. And by the time you get to the Second Corinthians, which we have in our Bibles, It says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I love this. The Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. So maybe this is the question. Can you think of God like that? Just when we start off, as we get rolling here this morning, can you say, when I think of God, I think of mercies? Or is it maybe a a little bit more of a There's a lot of wrath. There's a lot of fear. There's a lot of struggle. What is it for you? I would say this way, that that all of this points to, when we're talking about the heart of Jesus Christ, it points to the fact that Jesus is the permanent display of God's mercy. And so if this is true, if Jesus is the permanent display of God's mercy, then we should understand what the term mercy means. Most of us are accustomed to hearing the term mercy described as, as not getting what you deserve. Another term for that could be like forgiveness. If, if I... I mean, Kevin has already been thrown out of the bus once today, so why not do it again? Kevin has a prolific record for driving, getting pulled over, and not getting tickets. Jeremiah is agreeing with me. He, he's incredible. I don't know how many it is, but it's probably a crime in itself to mention out loud. And he... In this you would think if you're speeding you should get a ticket but he doesn't he somehow gets mercy I don't know it's it really is crazy he really he just he just gets mercy so mercy is not getting what we do deserve the problem is that I think most of us just kind of we we mix up grace and mercy and if I could do it like this, if you have a coin in your pocket, there's probably like four people who actually still carry hard cash. But like, let's say you have a coin in your pocket and you pull it out. Okay, I want to propose to you that, that mercy and grace are two sides of the salvation coin. That in mercy, God does not give us what we do deserve. I deserve wrath this is the father has designed him he designed everything for himself to be worshiped in a particular way shape and form i fail miserably you fail miserably therefore he could throw the book at me and in mercy he chooses not to but one step further is that he provides grace and he lavishes blessing after blessing upon me in christ and so it's hard to think of mercy without also saying forgiveness and, and grace, it's, it's hard not to have those two things kind of happening at the same time. So hopefully you can grasp that. I would just say this for our purposes today, that biblically speaking, mercy is compassionate action uh, toward those in distress. You see, Jesus gets off a boat and it says he looks with compassion on the people and heals them. He, there's something he feels emotionally and, and there's something that drives him at the very core of who he is to act and not just go, oh man, sorry for that guy. <laughs> but he like does something. And so I, I feel to say when you have compassionate action towards those in distress, sometimes it's self-inflicted, my sin, right? Other times it's passively experienced. Like how many of us in here have, have, have experienced the loss of a loved one? Like, we didn't sign up for that. Nobody wanted that. Or maybe we have a chronic illness. Something that you didn't bank on, that you didn't bargain for, that you didn't want, ask for, or seek out. And here's compassion. Compassionate action toward those in distress. So we're really just looking at two things today, and hopefully it'll be um, pretty clear. We're looking at mercy meaning the very heart of God is one that is merciful. And you get that from like Psalm 103 where it talks about the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And it goes on to talk about how he forgives sins, heals diseases, all these different pieces. But the heart of God is one of mercy. That's why Paul says the father of mercies. That from his very heart, he begets or he has mercies for you. That's one reason why he can say in Lamentations 3 that his mercies are what? New every morning. He didn't run out of them. He's got a storehouse of them for you and I. So two things. We're going to talk about how mercy made the way and how mercy... Come. First, mercy made the way. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 14. You'll have to forgive me. I didn't actually give you a page number, so I'm going to make you work. Um, Or you can just listen. That might be just as easy. (laughs) We're going to skip down to verse 3 in John chapter 14. This is going to contain a little bit of the dialogue where Philip was the one who blurts out, Lord, show us the Father and it will be enough for us, right? Here's the pretext. It says, if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am you may be also. And you know where I am going. Okay, if I'm the disciples, I'm like, okay, what's he talking about? (laughs) This is starting to feel a little strange. And so Thomas our resident doubter, love Thomas. um, Lord, we, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know me and you have seen him. So he's real quickly equating this idea that if you've seen me, then you've really seen God. He confirms that he and the Father are one. The disciples, pay real close attention to John 14. You can look at like 1 through 11. Pay close attention to repeated words there. Words like see, words like know, and words like believe. Those are going to be peppered all throughout those first 11 verses of John 14, and they say something. They say something about the way that mercy makes And I love Thomas and Philip because Thomas and Philip are people who are just like resident doubters and strugglers. It tells me, and hopefully it tells you the same thing, Jesus loves doubters. He wants them. He invites them. He doesn't shun them. He doesn't push them away. He doesn't say, I'm sorry, your faith is not big enough. You know, Thomas is like, we don't know the way. And Jesus is like, let me explain. Philip's like, show us the Father. and He's like, here's how it works. And so Jesus, in his patience, meets the doubters and the strugglers. But he's basically saying, if you see and know me, then you see and know the Father. And with us, you know mercy. Or how about Luke chapter 18? Jesus is telling the story of two people who come to pray. Now the Pharisee comes in, all pompous and arrogant, chest out, and and looking down on the tax collector. And he's so pompous as to say, now, could you imagine this? Most of us would never think this way. I'll probably like, be the only one in the room who would admit this, right? But if I, I'm standing there and I'm praying and I'm standing next to this vagabond, this like, you know, person who's really struggling and like, their life is like a dumpster fire happening. And I'm like, thank God I'm not like this guy. Where my marriage has fallen apart, my finances are out of order, and I'm a laughingstock at work. That's the Pharisee. He comes rolling in thinking he's got his stuff together. But it's interesting because then it says the tax collector, who most likely would have been relatively wealthy because these people would have just pocketed things for themselves, right? So the tax collector is standing far off from the altar. He's even further away from where the Pharisee is at. And he's beating his chest, which is a first century sign of weeping and wailing and and contrition. And he said, be what? Merciful to me, a sinner. So here's the one who knows he's got his stuff together and by all accounts looks and appears as though things are good. And the one whose life, I don't know, probably looks just as good and tidy from the outside, but he's just not liked by other people, recognizes his deficiency. And in recognizing his deficiency, what does he do? He begs for mercy. He begs for mercy. And then the conclusion of the story is that he goes down to his house justified, it says, meaning he was made right with God. And the Pharisee who thought he was right with God goes away wronger from God or further away from God, to put it. But the first guy doesn't find mercy, the second does. You see, overall, when we start to look at this idea of how mercy made a way, we need to understand that the Father's merciful nature is not overcome by the sinful one that I bring to the table. Some of us just need to hear that. That he doesn't get overwhelmed by the garbage I bring. Or how about 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1, verses 12-16. through 16, Paul writing to a very young, new pastor, uh, taking care of this church, and he's trying to help him understand some things. And listen to what... I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. That's like a pretty nice rap sheet. It says, but I received, what? Mercy, because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed to me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And then he says this, The saying is trustworthy and deserving full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy. For this reason, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience. Have you ever thought of yourself as like the front of the line, the top of the heap sinner? And in that... The magnificence of the patience and mercy and grace of Jesus is being on display. That's what he's saying. And so I sit back and I go, okay, in dealing with all of our history and all of our past, the difficulty of fathers who maybe didn't provide a great picture of us, or a picture of God for us, look at what Paul says. It's actually a mark a positive, because Jesus was appointed by God the Father to do what he did. If you look at Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 5, it says this, But God, being rich in mercy, and because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. So there again, you see that idea of Mercy and grace being two sides of the same coin. Mercy made the way. It's because of God's great love that we're saved. I'm only standing here because of Him. You're only sitting here because of Him, ship with Him. You're only doing so because God the Father's heart and disposition toward you was one of mercy. Despite all of your baggage. So, secondly, mercy comforts. And we already read in 1 Corinthians, or sorry, 2 Corinthians 1 3, that God is the Father of mercies. Now I want to point out some things that might be helpful. If you think of him being the Father of mercies, you have to understand that Jesus embodies how the Father feels about your particular affliction. Let me unpack that just a little bit so that we can understand. In, in three little Scripture passages here that I want to use. I want you to pay attention to Jesus' response. Because remember, Hebrews 1.3 talks about how Jesus is the exact imprint of the nature of God. So Jesus is, is God incarnate. John 1.1. 1, 1, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. Nothing was created without God, Jesus by his side. So in Matthew 20, verses 29 through 34, it says this. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And the crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called to them. And said, Now listen, here's Jesus' words. What do you want me to do for you? Does that sound like somebody who's stoic and distant and unattached and unavailable and preoccupied and irritated and annoyed and aggravated? What do you want me to do for you? As Jesus, in the affliction of blindness, hear that Jesus is coming. And when they are silenced, they call louder, have mercy on us, son of David. What an invitation. And then in Mark chapter 1, there's a story of a leper. And again, I want you to pay attention to Jesus' words. It says, And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling said to him, If you will, You can make me clean. And listen to the words here. It says, moved with pity. Not pity like the, you know, weak, anemic pity. But moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. Again, does this sound like a distant, unavailable, aggravated, annoyed father? Sounds like an accessible, loving, gracious, merciful father. Or how about Luke chapter 7? In verse 11 it says this, Soon afterward he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And as they drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw, had compassion. Jesus embodies how the father feels about your particular affliction what is your particular affliction is it is it an illness that just won't stop is it a a marriage that is crumbling and difficult and challenging is it a sin that somehow has just like wrapped itself around your ankle is it some sort of doubt or anxiety or fear or dread what is it because Jesus embodies how the father feels about your particular affliction And his invitation is to come because why? We get weary. We get so stinking tired of dealing with the same thing over and over again. And we need to hear the father say, what can I do for you? Not in a selfish, man-centered sort of way that I just get what I want because, because I rubbed the genie bottle the right way. But no, like an obedient child, I come to him in faith like only he can heal me. And this is the disposition of the Father's heart toward you. Do you believe that? Do you, in your heart of hearts, do you believe this is God for me? Because if we believe that to the extent collectively that we believe that as a people of God, as a church of God, think about the possibilities of what our church could look like. Seriously. Over to Him in utter abandon and faithfulness because He is loving. His invitation is to come. His invitation is for you, it's for me. Listen to Jesus' words to the mother. After he feels compassion, he says this, do not weep. Oh, gotcha. I'll just shut off that switch real quick. But he says, do not weep. Then he came up and he touched the buyer and the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And then, I love this part, the dead man saw a little freaky. Can we be honest? Like, I would just be crazy, okay? (laughs) And then it says, Jesus gave him to his mother. Jesus doesn't go, sweet, we're done here. No, he he completes the circle. He says, don't weep. Then he gives her cause for rejoicing and finishes the job. So if you've ever doubted that God's going to finish what he started, he won't. He will totally finish what he started. His, His promises, his words, they always hold true. And his invitation is here. Come, what do you want me to do for you? You see, I love the fact that mercy, I've heard it said this way, that that mercy is a constructive displeasure. And so just briefly what that looks like. When I sin, I create a debt and a displeasure in the Father because he doesn't like sin. But because he is constructive in his love for me, because he wants to change me, because he wants to make me into the image of his son, his constructive displeasure over my sins is here. He not only forgive you, but heap blessings upon you in Christ and save you so that your motivation for action moving forward is good. There is a constructive displeasure that he feels. So mercy doesn't just say, eh, sin doesn't matter. No, it absolutely matters. It mattered to the extent of the life of Jesus Christ at the cost of his son. God loved you that much. And he's saying, I have a constructive displeasure for you. And I'm inviting you into my very heart. I want you. I want you. I want you. And I'm I'm willing to stop at nothing to provide a way for you to come. I think oftentimes what happens is we mistake the subjective and the objective. The objective is that the father has to feel wrath over sin. He has to mete out wrath over sin. The subjective reality is his love is so deep that he provided a way that I wouldn't be crushed by it. And you wouldn't be crushed by it. But his son. that speaks big time. And so as that come to do one closing song, just a truth to life. I had marked it out, but I'm awesome with time management. So um, Psalm 103, just jot this down in your notes. This week, Psalm 103, 8 through 14. And just read it, and read it, and read it, and then sit in it, and then sit in it some more, and read it some more. And then, after you read that, and after you remember all that was talked about with the idea of God and his merciful heart toward you, then read Romans 12, where Paul says to the Roman church, who's under great persecution and difficulty just for being this, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your lives as living sacrifices. This is your spiritual act of worship. So think about that for just a minute. He says, like, I'm not appealing to you because you're a lazy, worthless son. I'm appealing to you by the mercies that I provided to forgive you, to establish you in the grace I've given you in Christ. I'm appealing to you by those mercies. Now, make yourself dead. You're like, uh. Part of being a Christian is understanding that you're a constant living dead thing. He woke me out of my death. He moves me in my life because Christ is in me. And that's his invitation. So the rest of that quote when Tozer says, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about us? He continues by saying this. For this reason. The gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most pretentious, or important, I don't like that word, pretentious, and the most pretentious fact about any man is not what he may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. So as the band sings, and as you guys have time to reflect, consider, my dad painted a picture for me of who my